there's a lot going on in our world at the moment and it's possible, like me, that your mind is feeling full. Do you wish you could ever give it a spring clean, like sort out the bits and bobs and the clutter that's in there? Well, today's guest is going to chat to us about how we might be able to do this. I'm Ali Hill and welcome to Standout Life, a podcast dedicated to living boldly amongst the busyness. I'm smiling as I do this intro because I found this conversation with Jackie Lewis as down to earth and real as I found her research, her tools, practical and useful. Jackie is a writer, an educator, a speaker with a diverse background, including having worked in architecture and design. Jackie co-founded The Broad Place, a global school sharing ancient knowledge and modern neuroscience tools and experiences for higher grade living which sounds much clearer than what's going on in my mind at times. In our conversation, we talk about really practical tools that you can start today, small things that will start to clear the clutter and give you space. Jackie shares her personal and down-to-earth story in a way that's really open and inviting for anyone. So if you're stressed, anxious, overwhelmed, and keen to not be those things as much, then listen in to the genuine nature that is Jackie Lewis. Jackie, welcome. It's, uh, it's such a delight to be connecting with you. Thank you so much for having me, Sam Goes. There's a lot I want to dive into this conversation that I think is really relevant uh, at the moment. But I'd love to start with your background. From what I've seen, you've got quite a creative background, including doing some work in PR and marketing. What was it that pulled you into that line of work? What was it that kind of piqued your interest? Well, I actually started with interior architecture. So I studied that and graphic design, worked um, in those industries, also as a photographer, and then moved into more of the communications for those industries, um, which I loved doing. So uh, <laughs> as, as I'm sure your poor uh, listeners will suffer, I love talking. Um, and so I um, really found that the communication of ideas and concepts um, was really something that I thrived in. Um, that was also a really high pressure. Like advertising, marketing, and PR is generally speaking pretty high cooker pressure environment. Um, I also simultaneously, as, as well as having my own agency, ran a three hat restaurant um, and uh, owned a cafe. And my husband, who's also my business partner, had a couple of other businesses in the fashion and liquor industries. And so we we really understood that intense environment where you're trying to you know thrive uh, and survive at the same time and that was really what led me into starting the broad place which is the school that we that we run together um primarily me as the teacher but it was an opportunity for us to take all that we'd learned from that burnout boots on the ground approach and you know alchemize and turn it into something that we could share the tools that you know, that had really, really helped and transformed not not just me, but also a lot of the people that I was working with at the time as well. And it was sort of became this natural transition from effectively I was, you know, working before, just before the Broadplay started working as a brand strategist. So I was helping people have the, you know, the healthiest, most creative, vibrant, you know, businesses and brands they could. But ultimately, that's all about working with the people in the business. You know, if they're not in a great place, then neither is going to be the business. So what I ended up doing with the broad place was primarily just focus on their people and let all the brand strategy and the business side of things go and just work on that holistic approach of 
Um, ironically, a lot of the principles that I'd learned, you know, a couple of decades ago came into play um, about, you know, the right kind of health and the right kind of uh, tools and approach. And, you know, I really focus on clarity and creativity with people. But that's really how I got to being, you know, launching the Broad Place a decade ago. I'm going to pull you back a little bit because there's so much in what you've just said where you talk about typography, <laughs> architecture, three-headed, <laughs> you know. So I almost hearing is this intersection between creativity and business. So the creativity and the expression, but also how do we actually hustle and drive and grow and build and run a cafe and <laughs> and do that with um you know, a partner and all of the rest as well. What was it that I guess pulled you, I guess, with some of the threads, whether it was from your upbringing or the people around you that kind of saw that intersection between creativity and business um, be a part of where you, where you kind of launched into the working world? Yeah, look, pri- pri- primarily, my, you know, my father was a three-hat chef um, and a restaurateur, but also um, really understood and learned the business side of things and was really fascinated by them. Um, I found that really successful creators generally need to have a very good understanding of those things and generally don't like to engage with, you know, the bookkeeping, the accounting, the bad statements, the, um, you know, the, the strategy and the quarter, um, you know, annual planning of things. But I, so I saw that firsthand that the difference that that made for him um, did not mean that I launched in as a creative myself with, I hate, can stand, you know, <laughs> in the beginning, all of those parts of, um, of, you know, having a business and running a business. But so I understand the ret- the reticence in people, you know, where they like, I just want to do this thing. And, you know, in the self-development world, there's this whole messaging around, you know, just, you know, focus on the things that you're good at and say no to all the things that you're not good at. And my argument, I've, nonsense, I mean, <laughs> great way to fail. Um, I think the approach needs to be, and I mentor people on this all the time, is can you bring the right type of mindset and self-understanding to the things that you don't necessarily like doing but need to be done rather than just focusing and purely working on the things that you think you love you know there's that if you find something you love and you just do it you'll be really successful i mean if that was true we would see a lot of people doing all the things that they loved and being wildly successful i think there's a lot of evidence of that it's you know it's tough going sometimes so i think that the key thing for me has been a having you know and working in a family business for a long time but having that influence and then you know through all the industries that I've worked in whether it's advertising or architecture or um, photography it's also been having amazing role models who've really been able to model that for me Um, some also were role modeling what I didn't want to do um, which was you know also is equally important that I think we sometimes often ignore we just think we need to focus on all the good stuff and not actually really invite in like what's the learning there what's the lesson why is that making me so uncomfortable why do I why does that feel so gross? You know, what's my resistance there it can be a really powerful tool. Um, ironically, which is also pretty much what you're doing when you meditate. <laughs> so um, as a meditation teacher, that's, you know, they, they, these kind of concepts I found they're universal. You know, it's not necessarily, oh, it's just over here in the design industry or it's over here in the finance world or, um, you know, here in the entrepreneurial scene or in spirituality and self-development, they're the same concepts that are across everything. If you can understand the concepts, then you can really move and work with them no matter where you are. And the courage to be able to sit and ask those questions because sometimes we don't like the answers. So don't, like I don't want to sit in in that sort of sense of unknown. You touched on in amongst um, the business and as part of the 
the catalyst to starting the broad place was your own kind of overwhelm, burnout, and that can kind of sit on continuum. Most people listening will have a sense of, yes, I've been in different places. What was some of the, the signs for you? Uh, what were some of those things that you noticed for yourself to go, this isn't just me doing something I don't particularly love. This is actually really, really hard. What did, what did you notice for yourself that might have been kind of some signs of overwhelm or even burnout? Oh gosh. Um, there was, you know, the challenge I think for me was that the sort of subtle innocuous ones were really easy to ignore. And then the big glaring ones, I mean, there was always like, by the time you're face to face with the big glaring ones, the really obvious stuff you sort of probably channeled through, like, you know, moved your way through a lot of bad, like bad patterning and behavior before you get to the big, you know, um, meltdown phase. Um, the smaller innocuous ones for me, you know, that, I love to study, I love studying neuroscience and psychology and I wish I knew now what I knew, you know, particularly in my twenties and thirties, um, was that the body will always give the signals and the signs. And it's easy to ignore those if you have a strong mind, um, like I do. And if you're determined and ambitious and you love what you're doing, it's also another massive trap, um, for potentially burning yourself out because you're like, but I love this, you know? So, um, surely it wouldn't affect me if I love it so much, but it, it's burnout's burnout. So the, the little subtle ones for me were, you know, like really like, and I, now I'm going to describe it that don't sound so subtle, but you know, like aches and pains or, you know, getting headaches or just my body out of whack, you know, or like I kept pulling my neck out or, oh, my rib, you know, like, oh, my back is so sore. I need to get another massage or a bit repetitive, you know, not, not little things. And then, you know, disrupted sleep is another one, um, you know, and then, and then it creates a domino effect. You know, you have disruptive sleep because you've got too much happening in your mind. You're feeling stressed and strung out. It's, you know, that feeling of, you know, when you loop in the night with dreams mm. about, you know, like this happens, that happens and, you know, sometimes disastrous, you know, situations that you're dreaming about. And then um, what would happen for me is that then I would wake up more fatigued, you know, and then, and then ba- it's like habit. I don't know if you know the, the term habit clustering, but habit clustering is basically where habits will form and join other habits um, together. So it can work for us in a positive way. It can also work against us. So burnout has like an enormous magnetic pull together of habit clustering. You know, you, you, you're a little bit stressed, you're a bit burnt out already. So you don't sleep very well. You wake up tired, so you over caffeinate and then you eat foods that don't necessarily agree with you. And you feel, have this sense of like, I'm, I'm falling behind. So you want to push yourself harder and work harder as opposed to concentrating on efficiency and learning to say no. So clarity then goes out the door. Now we're making even unwiser decisions and starting to get even foggier. And it just, it's this snowball effect, you know, and I really think that one of the key things we need to do is basically like, just stop, you know, (laughs) stop, pause rejig that system completely and then rinse and repeat, you know, so basically, you know, put a handbrake so that we can get the clarity. Cause when you're in it, in that burnout phase, it's incredibly hard to know that you're in it. Even if it's wildly obvious to everyone around us, even if they're communicating it to us that, you know, you seem a bit this, or you seem a bit that it's just too easy to kind of keep bulldozing your way through. And I, most of the students I work with globally, are suffer, you know, have suffered or are suffering you know, from a level of burnout. I mean, 
most students come to the broad place. There's a, there's a few that come and they say, oh, I feel the best I've ever felt and I just want to feel a little bit better. You know, but the majority are like hanging on by a thread. You know, by the time they kind of <laughs> get to the crux, they're like, I need to learn to meditate or I, you know, need a program and a full reset on how I'm functioning in the world. They've usually pushed themselves well past their limit. So I'm, I'm very mm. familiar in dealing with that, with people in that space and very familiar with it myself. Um, it's a, it's... It's also, I want to highlight this, there is something exciting and intoxicating about being in that highly adrenaline space as well. And, you know, there's joy to be had when we're really thriving. You know, we're in that kind of like hustle you know, like, you know, I'm not into the kind of like rise and grind language and attitude, but there is something quite, I think when you're in flow and you're doing what you love and you put, you can see the progress of something that you're working on and it's exciting and, you know, it's, it feels good, you know, so it's then even more challenging to know, hang on, where am I flowing and where am I driving? You know, where am I f- moving and where am I pushing? That can be challenging when you're in it. 100% agree. And uh, I think one of the other things I've, I've seen that you've kind of spoken to is people kind of recognizing, hey, I know I need to change something up, but I don't want to let go of the ambition. I don't want to let go of the drive. There's still something there that's kind of niggling. And it feels like, you know, yeah, I just need to go and meditate on a mountain, but that's not that that also doesn't light me up either. No, I had the same thing. I, I, I honestly, I mean, I, you know, started officially, you know, practicing, I meditated when I was a little kid. I think it was a, I didn't really know what I was doing. It was in a response to, um, my, my little brother was born disabled and it was this strange little coping mechanism that my family all thought was quite weird, um, that I was doing when I was young. Did you and start then, that yourself? Or yeah, how I, would did just, you I just, I just would sit and we spent a lot of time in hospitals and I would sit and close my eyes and just find this like, quite, like I would bring my attention inside. It's, that's the only way I could describe it as a little kid. And then also I found it really lovely to spend time in nature and just, again, sit in that stillness and find that place inside of me that was sort of untouched and connected to everything. Um, I had no formal ideas around what that looked like, but it was something that I did often. And then when I was 18, I you know, and this was you know, quite a while ago, so... The, you know, there wasn't any Lululemon and yoga studios. It was basically just like, you know, a bit dusty and moldy and, you know, set up in your community center and you just wore track pants. <laughs> you know, like, there wasn't any like, you know, high tech outfits or anything. And at the end of my first class doing yoga, my, t- the teacher led us through a meditation and I had that, I was, had this really weird experience. I was like, oh, hang on a minute. This is super familiar. And I, I felt this deep, deep sense of like peace and connection, which by the way, then very quickly evaporated. And I, you know, spent like a decade trying to chase that experience again, um, of that, you know, deep connection because meditation is not always necessarily easy, you know, um, mm. and it can be made easier, but if you're just going it alone, it can be quite challenging. Um, and so when I circled back to it, I also could feel this, you know, reticence, this like dismay of, you know, a lot of the teachers that I was studying with, I was studying, which, which are also traditionally monastic practices being now like you know, square peg round holded in their way into the West, which are the contemplation and concentration techniques. And I had this like unnerving sense of, oh God, if I keep going down this path, you know, I'm going to be all like, like a blob. Um, I'm never going to get anything done. I'm going to have to dedicate my life to like, you know, wearing white linen. And um, I just, I really didn't get that you could actually 
work with these beautiful tools and practices and actually enliven you. And I, I get it all the time. People are like, God, you don't seem like a meditation teacher. And, um, you know, I'm pretty hyper. And <laughs> Which is, I, but it's also what does a meditation teacher look like, right? We it's all, about, it's, it's like this projected idea. On the mountaintop. Yeah, exactly. It's this project, you know, like, you know, the guy should have the goatee and, the, you know, we should all be wearing mala beads. And, you know, there there are prolific, wonderful teachers that fit that mold. But I, I would love to see, I'm enjoying seeing more space being made uh, in the modern world for, for teachers that are will, you know, keen to share this in a vibrant, really invigorating way. And I, I found for myself personally that as a teacher, it's really helped me connect with people that go, oh, hold on a second. So you're saying I can do things that are going to actually effectively bring me more clarity, make me more creative, innovative, And I don't have to necessarily become a vegan and like give up my family life and throw away all my friends and go and live in a mountaintop. I mean, we've, I don't know, Alison, if you've had this, but I've definitely had the the, the thought, (laughs) maybe going and living in, you know, being a parent and working full time, the thought that maybe living in a monastery would be a good solution. Um, (laughs) At least someone else might cook. That would be my thing. (laughs) Yeah, you're like, oh my God, get away from all of these people. Um, But I found that, that it's actually the integration of these tools and practices with a dynamic modern life that actually helps them take more easily. And I, I, I spend a lot of time in monasteries and ashrams, you know, and you can also crash and burn because you can create this sort of like beautiful, delicate, sweet, nurtured environment that means when you re-enter the world, you've lost a bit of your resilience and a bit of your tenacity. And I actually think that the, the practices where they really work is when they're actually like happening, I call it boots on the ground, like, you know, like putting one foot in front of the other day in, day out, juggling all the things and leaning into the tools and practices that will actually enhance those things, not take away from them. Mm, where the internal landscape is very different, but the external might be the same activity. So you have written a book that is uh, has just come out. It's called The 14-Day Mind Cleanse, and it is this beautiful um, – it's beautiful to hold and to pick up and see. So congratulations. Who did you you. write this book for? I wrote this book for all of our existing students and everyone else that I get to speak to around the world that is like, I don't have time for this stuff. (laughs) And they're like, listen, I get like the whole blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I really understand. I, I feel for them because I was in the exact same place where it feel you know, sometimes you have a very clear sense that you're not operating anywhere near your best capacity. I'm not even talking optimum. I'm just talking, you're like, you know, tooth and nailing your way through the day and you have that imposter syndrome or you're lacking confidence or, and it feels like the world is coming at you, not like you're coming into the world. And the thought of sitting down with some giant philosophy book and learning all these, you know, special ancient techniques can sometimes just feel like, are you, ki- you kidding me, right? Like I'm barely crawling into bed of an evening. And so I wanted to distill what's 23 years of study for myself and, and you know, all of that practice, but 10 years of teaching into the kind of book that I wish I'd had when I was going through that crazy burnout and push that because I know that so intimately, like if you're at the tipping point and you just want to do a really great reset, you need it to be done as it, you need it to be as easy as possible, right? And if you want to learn something new and you want to work with the neuroplasticity of the brain and you want to adopt habits and techniques and tools that will serve you, the fastest and best way to go about that is to have distilled 
simple applicable things that you can engage with and to use them as building blocks you know as opposed to the whole like oh you know I guess I better go away on a two-week retreat or <laughs> you know or I need to quit my job or I need to you know and I, I, I really don't believe that any either of those things to be true um, what I feel like we all need particularly particularly as the world is, you know, I, you know, we were speaking earlier about the pandemic and the world's opening back up and, you know, everyone's trying to, you know, reclaim the new normal and so forth. I think what we all need is actually just something that we can pick up, we can engage with straight away, not without learning. So the book was specifically designed so that you get, you have enough philosophy and education that you don't, that you can read it quickly. And then you start diving straight into it, applying tools. And the other thing that was really important to me which drives me wild with a lot of meditation books is they don't actually teach you to meditate. They're like giant brochures. <laughs> like you get to the end of the book and you're like, great. Wow. Meditation's incredible. Thank you. But I still don't know how to do it. And I really wanted to distill a mantra based practice, which is where you work with a, a word or a sound in order to help the mind calm down. And so we, that's the first thing that you know you learn. So you learn a tool every day for seven days and it should, it's, they're quick to implement. You know, you, you can just start and then build a new one the next day and the next one the next day and so forth. And then you repeat the whole process for another seven days. So there's seven tools and then you redo them for seven days. And then at the end of the 14 days, I mean, the feedback's just been so phenomenal. People are like, I feel so clean, like crystal clear about who I am and what I'm doing. And then they pick and choose which tools they want to continue with. And the feedback from, because obviously, you know, we tested the book a lot and the feedback was phenomenal. I loved hearing which, like, which were people's favorite ones and which was the stuff that really stuck for them, which has been fascinating to see people engage mm. with. Have you, um, are you happy to share which ones, like, is there any that surprised you? Which ones have kind of been highlights? Definitely. So one of the ones that always gets people is this, this thing I call mashing. So mashing is basically multitasking, but it's, it's even more like it's a kind of grimier than multitasking, you know, multitasking was sold in as this, you know, amazing way in which we can all get more done. But really what it means is that we're doing too many things at once and we're not actually putting our full attention into everything. And, you know, we all know the feeling of that when we get to the end of the day and we just think, I don't even know if I got anything done, you know, or you just don't feel present to anything and you feel tired, but you can't even put your finger on why exactly. So mashing is a form of multitasking, right? And it's basically when we feel under the pump. And so we're starting to try to do different things that don't go together together. So you're bathing your kids and you're checking your emails. And then you're also like scrolling through Twitter while you're waiting for your emails to load, or you're watching a, a movie, but you're also checking in Instagram on your phone and then while you're checking Instagram you remember that you have to send an email so you kind of slowly pull your laptop onto your lap and next thing you know you know or you're reading a book and then the book you know mentions something you think oh my gosh I've got to order that thing and you stop reading the book and now you're on your phone making an online order you know so it's where you know there's there's some things where we mash like you might listen to an audiobook when you're going for a walk you know but it's when you're listening to the audiobook or and sending emails while walking <laughs> Mm. It's all the things that don't necessarily go together that go together that I think we're all prey, we all fall prey to. Um, and so the awareness around mashing, basically, one of those key tools in the book is to become aware of when you're doing it and then to just stop doing it and focus on one thing at a time. And it has just, it's like a, you know, when you like light up a football field, you know, those big bright lights, the way people are describing it is 
they were like, I don't know how I've managed to get myself into a position where I'm mashing every single facet of my life. I'm standing in line at the coffee shop and then I'm plus while I'm checking social media while talking to my friends simultaneously. And then I'm drinking my coffee while walking down the street, while talking on the phone to my parents or, you know, it's all kind of like no one thing is ever being honored. And so the, it's very, you know, like, it feels bright and, and bold when people start to realize, hang on a second. And it feels incredibly empowering and liberating when they actually just do a single thing. And they bring the joy back into doing those things is also another one of the um, thing in the book is joy writing, which is all about reinstigating and reclaiming joy for ourselves in little tiny ways, you know, not like the promotion and the holiday, just the, the little day-to-day joys. And they seem to go really beautifully together, the mashing and the joy riding, because people start to actually go, hang on a second, I don't want my days to be a blur. I don't want to get to the day, end of the day going, oh, I don't even know what happened in the day. I want to pace my way through. I want to be present to the life that I have. And I, I work also, uh, I'm a death walker as well, and uh, as, as, as well as a writer and a meditation teacher. And when you work with the dying or the grieving, you know, time and presence are the two things that they want back. Like they, they, I wish I had more time. I, um, I wish I was more present as well to my life is something that I hear all the time. So I really wanted to kind of, let's not get to the point where we get the terminal, you know, result, um, you know, the test back. Let's not, you know, we go through the divorce or, you know, uh, you know, bankruptcy, like these big life occurrences that kind of snap us out of the, our current state. What I'd love to see, people do is actually go, no, you know, I can take charge every day. I can actually start to implement things that will help me feel more joy, more clarity every single day, rather than waiting until the big, you know, hammer comes down on my life. And then I have to start making changes. It's such a useful perspective and and really interesting work that no doubt that, you know, that you do, and that gives you that level of perspective to actually make changes. And as you say, it starts with awareness to stop and think. I've thought of all the times I've been standing in the line as you were talking in and you're doing five <laughs> things and it feels like efficiency, but also how freeing it is to be really present to the task at hand. Um, and to give away a bit of a secret, it's one of the reasons why I love podcasting because where else do you have a full solid hour dedicated to a conversation, zero other distractions. Um, it feels like a real gift, but it's really, you know, talking to what you're describing. I think the book, I found it so practical and you're right in terms of it's got that level of science, but then here's key things you can do one per day. Naturally, as the ambitious person, I'm like, I'm going to hack the system. I'll do all seven in one day. In fact, I'll do them all now and then I'll be sorted. And you might find that in some of the people that you work with. And I oh, that's me doing tea. Build- <laughs> no, that's right. Like, that's fine for everyone else. They can take seven days, but I'll do it in seven minutes. Um, and you call it building skills. Now, when we talk about learning new skills, they are awkward. We go back to being a student. We do them badly to start with. Um, and therefore, we can feel like what's the point? it's not working um how would you encourage people to stick with the skills if that might be their experience oh gosh I mean look I feel I feel like there is the rare person that just dives headfirst into learning something new with no internal narrative about how they're being an idiot while they do it um that they are so rare but for you know most of us 
it's the internal narrative. It's the dialogue that we're having with ourselves about what an idiot we are or, um, oh, God, you know, this should be easier than we think. And, you know, having a teenager has been fascinating for me because, I, I've seen, I, you know, it's so interesting. It's like kids get to, you know, they, when they're little and they sort of are in primary school, so up until about 12, they're highly encouraged to make mistakes. And it's seen as learning in inverted commas. And they don't mock each other either. You know, I mean, they do a little bit the older they get. But generally speaking, it's like, okay, you know, you, you know, we actually applaud them. Like, it's adorable. You know, if they say, you know, hospital wrong or they say hospital or, you know, we're like, oh, my God, that's so cute. You know, they can't, they can't walk properly. You know, they can't, they're a bit clumsy and uncoordinated. They get the math wrong. And, and we're like, oh, you know, we love that about them. And then it just tips and it just changes and they enter high school. And next thing, you know, every single thing that they may be doing wrong is perceived as a mistake and an error and they need to like pull up their socks i also have you know it's a would be a much longer conversation about the, the way the schooling system is structured around this you know they're terrified to make a mistake but also then we leave as adults and we go as you know finish school and go into the world and making mistakes somehow even seem even more harrowing. And, you know, whether that's in our relationships or that's in our, you know, personal life or that's in our um, career, it's like making a mistake suddenly has gotten to the point where it's not applauded. It's not seen as a creative uh, endeavor. It's not, it's really challenging. So, I found that this it compacts down into people just learning the simplest of things. Their internal narrative is really strongly worded around like, you know, not being good enough or not doing it well enough. So um, I would always, the first step for people learning a new skill is to understand that that if like listen to that narrative and ask yourself the question, is this helpful? Or is it unhelpful? And you'll not find 99% of the time the narrative going on in your head is really unhelpful right now the beautiful thing about the you know the the narratives in our head is we get to choose which ones we engage with because there's lots of them going on and one of the helpful tools that I really like to work with is if you wouldn't say it to a three-year-old do not say it to yourself and I have always found that that's a, a fantastic way of you know like if you're baking cookies with a three-year-old you know they'd they're definitely going to do a terrible job of it, you know, and their cookies aren't round and they're all bumpy and they're definitely not distributing the chocolate, you know, the chips properly. And, um, you know, and they, but you know, you're not going to be like, Oh God, look at you. What, what are you thinking? This is a terrible cookie. You know, you're like, Oh, you're doing a very good job, you know? And then, and then you're like, mm, and you know, you're putting them in the oven, you're baking them and you're tasting them and you're like, Oh, yummy. <coughs> you know, probably spitting it out yeah. on the side, but you know, like we're very kind and generous with a three-year-old. Why aren't we treating ourselves like that? You know, why aren't we being as kind and generous and sweet with ourselves? The very, the thing we have to live with day in, day out as we would be with a three-year-old. So I work a lot with students on reframing those, those internal narratives and shifting them and changing them and just being like, you know, this is not healthy. It's not, you know, conducive to me being happy to constantly berate myself about the terrible job I'm doing, particularly when I'm learning something new, the whole point of which is that I'm supposed to make mistakes like miss takes so I can continue to learn and grow. Um, so that, that, and there's also one more piece I'd love to add to that if I may, which is that a lot of people think that they need both confidence and motivation 
in order to get something, be good at something. And it, it couldn't be further from the truth. So know what you do not need motivation. I, I mean, like I'll out myself here. I feel like this a lot about exercise a lot. I'm like, mm, I need new active wear in order to start exercising because, you know, I'm like, <laughs> I'm not motivated you to do, do it. You yeah, because I'm not motivated do. to do it because, like, yeah, look at my clothes. <laughs> but if I had new fancy active wear, I'd be really stoked. Um, so I, 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 I like really get the mindset behind it, but um, the idea that will motivation will like inspiration will strike us and then we'll start taking care of ourselves and then we'll be able to meditate and then we'll be able to employ all these great tools just couldn't be further from the truth. Same goes with confidence. We don't feel confident about it and then do it. What we do is we do it, we do it, we do it, we do it. And then because we're seeing results, it motivates us. And also because we're seeing results, we feel more confident about it and then we continue. So there's a lot, I think, of this like mental putting the cart before the horse, you know, where we're like, oh, well, I'll do it once I feel really confident about it, I feel motivated, and then we never do it. So is as you're walking through the book and you're employing a new skill every day for these seven days, A, so just to recap, being super gentle with yourself, don't talk to yourself like you wouldn't talk to a three-year-old, and then also understanding that you keep doing them, you become more confident and you feel more motivated. It's, that's the only trajectory that can happen, not the other way around. Follow the actions, do the consistency. And yeah. if you happen to buy active wear, that's okay. But it's oh God, not yeah. the reason to do that. <laughs> and I, but also, and that's, uh, yeah, so decide by that. Like also use whatever tools you need. You know, I, I have the wildest things that I employ in order to, you know, get myself, you know, like I'll put like, you know, my exercise sneakers at the front door. So, you know, basically self-shaming myself into doing it and things like that. Like do whatever you got to do to get it done, but just get it done. One of the things that we look for, I mean, you talked about motivation and confidence. I think the other thing is clarity. And when there is so much going on, being pulled in a million different directions, again, part of why why people might crave and go, yeah, I'm happy to go and live in a monastery is because I just want to get clear. What Mm -hmm. are some of the mind hacks that you have that you work with people around in order to get greater clarity? So first of all, I'll say something controversial. Um, the word hack, and it's only because I've seen it used so much in like the word like life hacking, um, is the idea that there's a shortcut. And in my experience, like if you can like create like a little tiny, like, you know, backdoor entrance into something. And in my experience, the hacking of things means that you don't necessarily like have the same resonance with them and the same joy as you do from just going through them um, in sometimes an unpleasant way, right? So what I'm trying to say is that engaging in a new skill or tool doesn't also necessarily feel comfortable. It can feel really uncomfortable and there's no way to hack our way out of it. So that's just a little controversial sidebar. But um, so in regards to tools that we can use for greater clarity, daily meditation for me has been is the foremost like in sitting and it feels counterproductive in the modern world like what you want me to sit still and close my eyes and technically do nothing in order to feel brighter and clearer in my day and that's precisely it because a lot of the time what's happening with meditation is people think that they need to feel good while they're doing it like i'm gonna sit there it's going to be like, oh, warm and fuzzy and it's going to be like bliss and you're going to be like levitating and, and they sit down and they like full frontal in like facing their own mind and just completely bewildered and frustrated by what they see. And for clarity, you know, I think, you know, I'm pretty sure most people think, no, now that meditation is good for them, but what they fail to recognize is that sitting down to meditate won't also always feel great, but 
and you won't have the clarity when you're doing it. So a lot of the time people are like, I'm going to sit down, I'm going to close my eyes, I'm going to meditate, and, oh, I'm going to have like any aha moments and all these ideas. But what we're doing is we're building up almost like a, a mind and physical muscle memory so that we have more clarity and spaciousness. And a lot of the time the clarity is coming with your eyes open, but you have to sit down and close your eyes to meditate in order to have it in the day. And that's also something I'd love to add in. If people can reframe their meditation practice, it's not about feeling good necessarily when you meditate. It's about how you feel in the day afterwards. So I see meditation as an investment in time. So in the book, I'm recommending uh, 10 minutes once a day. Um, we also teach a practice called Mind Fit, which is an online program you can do, and that's 15 minutes. And then I also teach integrated meditation, which is a form of Vedic or transcendental meditation, which is 20 minutes twice a day. So you know, kind of like ramping people up. But even at that full 20 minutes twice a day, it's still only 3% of the day. And I'm always saying to students, just think of that 3% as an investment to enhance the other 97%. I think a lot of the time we're like so desperate for clarity that we're sitting down to meditate and we're like, burn it. You know, we want it there and then in a, med in a you know, dedicated time and it doesn't necessarily always work like that. Um, something else for clarity for me um, is the daily presence. So the, the more aware you are of the mashing, the calmer and clearer you are in the present moment and the more the clarity can flow through us as opposed to that really fractured, you know, you can imagine if we go from task to task while doing all the other tasks, having clarity within the moment is really, really challenging. And another one is just making sure that we're getting quality sleep, like the right type of sleep. Um, it's not necessarily even the length of the sleep we get, but the, making sure that we're getting quality sleep. Um, and then also looking at the things, I think we're, as a society, pretty exhausted. Um, and I also think what was ironic with the pandemic, and I, I, you know, I'll venture this, you know, this was what it was for me. You know, we were traveling five months of the year, um, you know, I was always like here, there and everywhere. And I was like, oh my gosh, you know, sometimes I feel so tired, but it's because of this and that. And then the pandemic hit and we weren't going anywhere. I was like, nope, still tired. Uh, and so it was that, you know, there was a great meme that I saw that was going around at the beginning of the um, pandemic, which was, you know, uh, 2019, all I need is two weeks to just spend at home and get my life admin in order. And then it was like 2020, nope, that wasn't it. <laughs> um, and you know, it's the, it's the, what we're doing with our mind. It's not necessarily it's as much as what we're, how we're pushing our bodies is also what brings that level of that fatigue. And that is detracting from the clarity. You know, it's really hard to have clarity when we're just overwhelmed, exhausted emotionally. Hugely. And you talked about, um, even before we jumped on, we kind of went, you know, how relevant is this given COVID and in a lot of ways our world has been shaken up. Our Every habit that we've ever had as a result of the last two years has been kind of put on the table and we get to go, do I still want to, do I want to pick that up again? And, you know, how am I going to um, take things forward? And it is acknowledging, and I'm certainly hearing it, seeing it, um, have felt it myself, acknowledging that even at this point when we're starting to open it up, open up and things are kind of vaguely going back to normal, whatever that means, there is still this feeling of being a bit stuck, a bit stagnant, and maybe even a bit, um, I mean, the word I've seen you use is sluggish, which is probably not a bad word for it because we've been on high alert and looking out and needed to make changes and we've adapted really quickly and we do that really well. Um, if someone is hearing this and is, going, is nodding and going, yes, I am feeling that, what might be, 
you know, three really practical things they could do. We've talked about meditation. In addition to that, what might be, you know, three really practical things that they could start to do to, to I guess, be aware and, and start to combat that feeling? Of course. Well, like, to, so to, to prep, to start with that, that the 14-day the mind cleanse is basically the idea of taking yourself through a reset and undertaking something where you can basically pause the things that aren't working for you and invite in the things that do work for us. And those things don't have to be long-term if they work and you do them in the short term and you get that clarity, you feel that motivation, you're feeling inspired and you're back out in the world, then great. You don't have to necessarily continue with all of them. But I think this idea I would recommend, um, so the first tool is pausing, pausing the things you already know aren't working for you. Like we've all got them, you know, it's like, I just said to my, my husband this morning, I was like, you know, I, I'm going on a, on a six week, uh, streaming pause. You know, I just, I get so hooked, you know, like, you know, we're, we do it. We're watching Ozark at the moment. And, you know, before that it was mm. euphoria and I, I get so like, Oh, I just need to watch one more episode, you know? Um, I'm never, I'm not the person, but I'm also not the person that has like one piece of chocolate or one cookie, you know, I'm, I, I'm always yes. fascinated when people are like, oh, I'll just have one piece, like one piece of chocolate of the whole bar. I'm like, no, I'm eating the whole bar. I'm like watching the whole series. And I'm like, I'm definitely binging, you know, on those things. And so, um, I know it's not necessarily, sometimes it's great, but most of the time it's taking away from other things, right? Cause that time needs to be, could be, you know, listening to beautiful music and stretching and reading the books that I want to read and so forth. So I love to just do pauses for the really, like what it would call in marketing parlay, the low hanging fruit, <laughs> you know, like the really obvious stuff, you know, and then inviting in the things that we know might work for us is the second one. So for most of it, it's funny. My, you know, my daughter said the other day, um, she goes, so hang on a second. Oh, let me get this right. So if we exercise, we drink enough water, we eat relatively good food that, you know, works for us and we get enough sleep. We're going to feel pretty great. And I'm like, mm-hmm, yep, that's right. And she goes, oh, why is it so hard? <laughs> and, and it's like that, it's like the, it, 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 sometimes it feels hard, like the fundamental things. So it's, if you can first step, pause the start, just one, pick one thing that you know doesn't work for you. You know, you're undermining yourself. Maybe you're over-caffeinating, maybe you're overeating, maybe you're, you know, spending way too much time on social media or doom scrolling, you know, which with the war in the Ukraine and everything that's going on, it's just easy to kind of like keep like looking, looking, reading, 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 reading. Oh my God, being horrified by the world. So pausing, you know, setting a time, for example, I'm just going to do that for 30 minutes or 15 minutes or an hour or whatever it is but pausing it outside of that and then inviting in one thing that works, you know, are you dehydrated inviting drinking two liters of water a day? Are you exhausted? Go to bed early. You know, it's not necessarily rocket science. It's, it's actually the simple fundamental things that really can make pivotal shifts. And the third one I would say self-awareness, I think, you know, I'm, I know that that's not like a, 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 a like a quick, um, tool like in, you can invite and pause immediately you could literally be listening to this and make a commitment this very second that you're going to for example commit inviting exercise every day and pause you know watching tv till midnight um but you the self-awareness piece is a different piece ironically it ties in though you need the self-awareness to understand okay i get away i'm pushing the you know pushing myself a bit there and i'm just self-destructing over there I'm not supporting myself, for example, to be able to even make those decisions. And I don't know that we put a lot of attention in the modern world on self-awareness. 
you know, it's kind of like a lot of people are like, oh, I you know, do therapy once every two weeks and there's my 45 minutes and that's it. Tick that box. Or, and even that, they're the rare people, um, mm. or I meditate or I, you know, but, you know, it's that like, okay, how do I track through my day with presence and really gently not, I think a lot of people are nervous about self-awareness because it, they're used to the self-narrative of like, oh, you're an idiot, you're doing it wrong. Whereas self-awareness is being aware that you're doing that. <laughs> self-awareness is like, wow, I'm really undermining myself there. Or I'm really not believing in myself there. What can I do about that? Uh, how could I best support myself? You know, so for introverts, for example, sometimes it's that they, you know, push into being a little bit more open. And for extroverts, it's maybe that they pull in and find some inner stillness and don't need to be so outward orientated all the time. Self-awareness is a really beautiful piece. And I would recommend for anyone listening, um, read the books that help that, you know, um, if you can access a therapy, I mean, Australia now, thank goodness, thanks to the pandemic, you can go on mental health plans with, you know, referrals from your GP and actually get therapy. Um, these big sessions, you know, packets of therapy that I'm recommending to students all the time at the moment. Um, so for Australian audiences, that's available. Um, and then also like having the honest conversations is a big part of the self-awareness, not like self-indulgent pivoting everything about yourself, you know, in a conversation with your friend, but exploring in a trusted environment, those ideas about, you know, all the topics that we've spoken about on the podcast and, you know, how does that feel for you? What does that look for you? What do you do for yourself? And sadly, something that I've seen is women tend to sort of lean into this and men don't. Um, I cannot begin to tell you how many, um, you know, uh, male identified students I see that are from the teenage years all the way through to into their seventies who are like, so, um, kind of have this thing going on. It's just nothing really, but like I, you know, and go on to describe like, you know, acute panic attacks, feelings of, you know, ter terrible self-worth, um, you know, lacking in confidence. They feel like they don't have direction in life and, and then they go, but I know I'm the only one doing this. So I feel really awful talking about it. <laughs> and I get you all talking to each other um, because there it's across yeah. the board. Um, so that I think one of the big pieces of self-awareness is learning how to put language to it and to discuss it and feel and feel comfortable with being uncomfortable with that initially. Huge, hugely important and really hard, but such an important invitation because I think that is also then understanding who we are. Um, I know me personally, I'm a terrible cook, um, but for years I didn't want to admit that because of my job as a mother and as a wife is, you know, obviously to try and feed people and, and other people seem to enjoy it and I'm kind of lacking in something. And it was when I kind of owned that and went, no, I'm just really crap at it <laughs> and drop that and like I definitely cook dinner occasionally I forget about it occasionally I burn it but that's okay <laughs> um which is that self-awareness and self-permission to, yeah. to really understand you probably hate you the are. process less because you stopped the secretiveness you know it's like okay I'm just not great at this mm. but I'm gonna do my best and then you're like oh my god all that stuff I was carrying around blah, blah, blah. and once that is you can sort of put that to bed um it, it's much more liberating and then you get more clarity and then I found ironically people then start to enjoy it more than they did when they were very busy hating it mm. 
Absolutely. I can definitely attest to that. One of the ones that I love um, in your tools is Joyride. And you talked about that often when we think about a mind cleanse or even some of the things we've talked about. I love your your daughter saying it's really hard because, you know, (laughs) giving up some of those vices or the extra coffee can feel like um, less. But what you're inviting in the Joyride is to, to find those moments of joy. What, how would you encourage people to do that or stick with that tool in particular? Look, I'm going to share a really, maybe going to regret sharing this story, but there was this great story that I always loved about, um, and I, I can't remember the name of the, it was an American man and he went to this Zen monastery in Japan. I think it was like the forties or fifties. And, you know, he was like very determined to become, you know, like a, you know, study this monastic, beautiful Zen way of life. And, um, but he was finding it really hard to kind of like give up a lot of his, you know, um, habits, uh, let's say, and, and little crutches. And he was in this, uh, monastery and they strictly banned like any substances. So, and he liked smoking cigarettes. So he was just nervous going in. So he'd squirreled away this pack of cigarettes. And then he was like two and a half months into staying in this monastery. And he was like, screw it. I can't take this anymore. You have to have a, you know, have to have a cigarette. And so he goes and gets the cigarette and he's sitting on the edge of the balcony. Right. And he's looking around and there's no one there. You know, he's like, and he starts like lights cigarette and he's like, <laughs> smoking as fast as he can. Right. Cause he's, you know, I'm going to get sprung at any moment. Anyway. So he's like, <laughs> quickly smoking, his eyes are darting everywhere. And then literally he turns and he feels something. He turns and it's, it's like, he's going <laughs> Obviously he didn't, but he, it was like he materialized, this old monk materialized next to him and was just watching him smoke. And the guy goes, ah, you know, like has this like, oh my God moment. And it goes to throw the cigarette away. And the monk goes, no, stop. I don't have a problem with you smoking. I have a problem with how you're smoking. And he said, if you're going to smoke, please do it with some level of enjoyment. He's like, you know, like light that, like watch that little match light and, you know, and, and marvel at the match and the fact that this has just created fire and then light that cigarette and listen to the crackling of the tobacco leaves and watch the smoke twirling and feel the, you know, the smoke fill your lungs and the weight of that little cigarette in your hand. Like be present for all of it and enjoy it if you're going to do it. And for me, it really struck, um, uh, something in me because I realized, you know, this was probably like 15 years ago. I read the story. I realized I was doing this. I was doing this like, this is good. And this is bad. You know, this behavior is good. And this behavior is bad and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, really just branding it into two camps as opposed to, um, and, you know, really not enjoying doing a lot of the things that were good for me in inverted commas and really, you know, bringing, and then a lot of guilt and shame to doing the things that, you know, probably were inverted commas bad for me and not really then enjoying any of it. You know, like it's, it's kind of ironic. And so the art for me of joy is, and I'm not, by the way, to be clear, saying everyone needs to go light a cigarette, but it's that thing of like, you need to be like, whatever we're doing, can we be really present to it? Because that's where we'll find the joy. So I set really simple tasks for students where I'm like, you know, talk to me about your work day. And I'm like, okay, so don't eat lunch walking down the street and just sit down and eat it sitting down. Just be present to your meal. I mean, it doesn't take that long to actually eat a meal. Um, you know, if you have a salad or a sandwich. Oh, I'm like, oh, put it on a plate. Take it out of the Tupperware container. Or, you know, just like creating the joy in all those little moments. You know, for most of our students, I'm like, what are the things that bring you joy? And they're like, oh, I just love taking my dog, you know, to the dog park and letting them you know, go for us, watching them swim. You know, they get so into it. And then but they're like, yeah, but I don't have enough time for that. 
you know, um, or they're like, oh, it's too noisy and I'm trying to make a phone call, you know, uh, a work phone call. So where all the other dogs are yapping around, so I just have to walk him around the block instead. Or they say, you know, oh, I love, you know what I love? I love making a cup of coffee and just, you know, drinking it on my balcony while the sun, you know, with the sun on my face. And I'm like, oh, do you do that every day? And they're like, no, 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 God, no, I don't have time for that. No, no, I'm getting a latte and I'm pounding down the street while, you know, trying to, you know, do something, check my emails while drinking latte. I'm like, okay, so let's break down how many extra minutes would it take for you to actually sit and drink your coffee? And they're like, oh my God, three, <laughs> three minutes. Um, and it's this, and by the way, by the time we line up for the latte anyway, and someone else makes it, you know, and so it's this, it's for me, joy, the beauty of joy is reclaiming the parts of our day that we love that may not make sense to anybody else. You know, like I've got a lot of, you know, I hear all these, you know, the most beautiful things. They're so, they're so simple and sweet. No one says like, oh my God, when I buy a new Mercedes, you know, uh, I mean, I, I've taught in like some amazing, very impressive, you know, workplaces with big brands in the finance sector and no one in that room. I mean, they're supposed to be at the top of their game in regards to finance. And when I talk about joyriding, they get them to write down the things that bring them joy. None of them are like buying a yacht or, you know, flying mm. in my private helicopter. You know, they're like, oh, I just, you know, taking that extra five minutes in bed in the morning when my four-year-old crawls into bed with me, you know, or, you know, um, when I come home from work and I'm really, really tired, but instead of jumping straight onto the emails, I play hide and seek, you know, with my kids or, um, you know, going for an evening stroll after dinner. You know, and then when I break down, oh, I don't do it because I don't have time. And we've got to really, I really think the joy and the time equation are coming up against each other. And we're telling ourselves a story that we don't have enough time and we're deliberately eradicating joy from our lives accidentally, but still deliberately because of this concept. So the joy rating is essentially the reclamation of those things. And we walk through the whole process in the book about how to do that and what to be aware of. Um, and it's, it's always that is just that I do a lot of big corporate workshops and that's the one, that's the tool that people always go, God, that really struck a nerve. I mean, I've had people burst into tears because one of the things I do when I do it in person is I also make them write down, they have to write down 10 things that bring them joy. And then I make them write down when's the last time they did it. And sometimes people can't remember the last time they did any of the things that brought them joy in the list. And they're sitting there going, racking their brains, being like, I don't even know if it was six months ago. I don't know if it was like a year ago. And instead what I'm also, I get them to do a joy ride every day, like introduce a new one. Um, and they just can't believe how transformational something as simple as that is. And that for me is the real joy of teaching is the, the, the simplicity, you know, there's the simple things work and we're all, but we're missing them often because it's like, oh, that's so obvious mm. <laughs> that we're not doing it. It's the one that really resonated for me and you're so right. Like it is those small little things. And when you see them written down, and I would encourage everyone to do what you've just said, write down the 10 things and when was the last time you did it. When you see them written down, you go, I can actually engineer those. I am not have to wait um, for that to happen. I can schedule that and put that into my week. So many great tips, so many great really practical things that people can do in amongst that kind of sluggishness or unknown or kind of overwhelm. Jackie, if people want to connect with you, how can they, what's the best way for them to do that? The best place is our website, which is the broad place, um, 
B-R-O-A-D, <laughs> place.com.au. Uh, our Instagram as well is at the broad place. And yeah, I'd love, I mean, I'm the, like, you know, as an author, you, you put a book out into the world and any kind of connection you have with people and the feedback and the emails, there's such a delight. So I'd really encourage that's, that's for anyone listening. If you love an, if you love a book or you love a writer, like take the time to connect with the author because it means the world to us. Um, it's really special, you know, and it really forms how you then continue to teach and write and so forth. So, um, yeah, I'm, big welcome for any kind of communication. And I would encourage people to do that. We'll make sure we put the links for the book. As I said, it's a beautiful book. And I would encourage people to make the book their own, start to write in the margins. There is things in there. So often we don't want to write on books, but this book is an invitation to do that. It's really bright and colourful and practical and relevant and useful. Jackie, I want to wrap up with a final question. The name of this podcast is called Standout Life. When you hear that term, what does it mean to you to live a standout life? For me, a standout life is one that is unapologetic, where we're not apologizing for really living authentically. And I know that's a bandage around term, authenticity, but I mean like complete alignment to our higher selves, you know, and that not in a lofty way, in a, like when we know the thing, when we're really clear on who we are and the things that are unique to us, and then we live in total alignment to those things. I think that for me is a real standout life. I'd sign up for one of those for sure. Thank you so much, Jackie. I've loved this conversation. Me also. Thank you so much for having me. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then there's every chance that you might also enjoy reading a copy of my book called Stand Out, a real world guide to get clear, find purpose and become the boss of busy. You can grab a copy by heading to my website, www.alisonhill.com.au. If you liked what you heard in this episode, I'd love it if you could take a few moments, pop over to iTunes and give this podcast a quick rating so that we can continue to share these conversations with people around the world. As always, I'm Ali Hill and this is Standout Life.